There's nothing ill can dwell in such a temple. At worst, its lines align my spirit gentle. That's hey, everyone. It. That's it. That's it. That, that's the whole yeah, that's poem. The poem. Two lines? Yeah, two lines. Like and one of them was stolen. Yeah. The first line is plagiarized from a Shakespeare play called The Tempest. Don't know if you've heard of it. Um, there's it's nothing ill can dwell in such a temple. Oh. He was talking about a person, mm. but I thought it would kind of fit in nicely to this semester on fashion welcome back to solo scene everybody <laughs> designing the beautiful sustainable tactile future yeah and today we're going to talk about our favorite art movements in relation to fashion in the solo scene and then we're also going to talk about the correlation between poverty and yeah it's gonna be yes as you said the, the correlation between exploitation of human and degradation of earth yes so we have some highs and some lows today. So buckle up, everyone. And if you like those highs and lows, buy our zines. You can read all about them, touch them, rip them, burn them, slip them. And uh, we also have clothes, handmade, solacine, vests, shorts, dresses. I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into those. So find them on our website and buy them. There's not really any blood on them. No. They are nice, though. We're on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> There's links. That's what I'm saying. There's, okay, links. there's links. So, yeah, you had this really exciting idea of talking about the Solocene fashion, i.e. the fashion of the utopian future, through the lens of existing art movements from different mediums, I think, was mm -hmm. kind of the intention. And I was really inspired by that question. So I answered it three times. Oh, my goodness. Whereas you kind of said we should just each pick one. Yeah. I picked th three. Thrun. <laughs> yeah, Thrun. So I thought that would be fun. Okay. And I went for three different mediums. Music, visual, and literary. And I guess I'll start with the music. Because I was playing some for you this morning, and that is Gregorian chants. Mm, so this is what's going to inspire fashion in the solo scene? Yeah. Monks. Monasteries. Monks. Okay. Monasteries. Do you get the vibe? I get the vibe. Yeah. And... Do you know where the name Gregorian comes from? I don't. Pope Gregory the First. Ah. I think it's a bit of a of a contentious historical topic, so I don't want to say that he invented this type of chanting. I think it was more like evolving out of a long tradition. But he was Pope in the ninth century and I guess was just a big proponent of the arts and he really loved music and mm. he kind of pushed this. There was something I read, it was like churches had to perform this kind of music on fear of death if they didn't. Oh my days. And also in that era, they weren't allowed musical instruments in churches. Mm. So hence the kind of acapella stylings of it, I suppose. Contrast today, you hear a lot of those plucky guitar strings. I don't have a very extensive musical vocabulary, but I think the word that describes Gregorian chanting, I already said acapella, I feel like people know what that means, just the voices, is monophonic, which mm. means there's no contrasting harmonies. I see. It's just like all the same note. Yes. And so, therefore, the more kind of voices that you get involved, the bigger the resonance. I think I'm using these terms correctly. Yeah. The depth and resonance, and I'll just say like the weight and the power of it, the power of it. And also, this goes along with our tennis theory because it's really inextractable. I think from the hollow and you know impressive cathedral interiors in which it's often or usually mm. performed yeah it's like a feedback between the cathedral and the voices yeah. like the voices perhaps as echo change 
yeah, in response to the echo. And that perhaps creates the illusion of harmony in a sense. Yeah, that's true. At least different levels. Timbers. Yeah, timbers. That's such an interesting idea that it's like this harmony between the voices and the architecture themselves. Yeah. Or like, you know, speaking religiously like the... And that's which they are worshipping. And it's not like I think Catholic dress will be the wave in the Soacene, fashion-wise. Mm-hmm. But it was more about the the weight of this music in that I think even people who don't jive with it religiously might jive with it musically. Mm. You know what I mean? Like there's you you can't just listen to that casually and go about your day. It, yeah, I it's think it impactful. Will, it's impactful. It will shake you and there's a, a weight to it and a seriousness to it. And also what I love about this is the uniformity. That's why I picked this rather than other types of choirs because I love the thing about everybody on the same notes and then it just multiplies with the more voices involved. And I think this sometimes when you see uniforms, like school uniforms, for instance, they're, uh, they're very pleasing to the eye, right? Mm, and yeah. I don't think everybody needs to be wearing the same thing. It's not about that, but it's more just about maybe being on the same wavelength, I suppose. That makes sense. Yeah. Not necessarily it's all dressing trendy, but like how... The Nordic countries, everyone kind of just wears dark colors. It's a trend, but it's more than a trend. It's like a lifestyle. Yeah. Or, or like in Paris, how the streets, the architecture is all the same. Mm-hmm. That just makes it look very neat. And yeah, I suppose the collectiveness of it, like something that's been, been on my mind this week is that fashion is kind of a social art. And I yes. think that's one of the reasons why I keep comparing it to architecture in these episodes is because it's really, it's not in isolation at all. Whereas you kind of can just write a poem and keep it to yourself or, you know, sing a little thing to yourself. I feel like fashion is very much kind of like performance art in a way. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of art you just would make for yourself. Yeah. And then eventually maybe you put it on exhibit, but it's like when you put together an outfit every single day, it's going to be on exhibit. And I think that uniformity can also apply to one's own wardrobe Hmm. for ease of choice, for ease of like mental space some people like the the choice in their wardrobe but other people it's very like burdensome yeah maybe instead of uniformity the word i'm looking for is cohesion yeah that's what i love about it yeah i think that's lovely the next one i was thinking about the visual which i don't have many notes for but it's just a a key point i wanted to make about neoclassicism which obviously was a prominent movement both in art and architecture i was thinking a little bit more about the buildings things like a lot of the U.S. government buildings, yeah. a lot of the French government buildings. I think it was Louis the Sixteenth who built those massive, like columned, really wide, impressive-looking buildings. And I mention this because I think the idea of collectively having a golden age to which we hearken back is a very good thing. And in the solo scene, we kind of flip that a little bit, but I also think they will, to an extent, be characterized by a reverence for what came before, if that makes sense, or at least the highlights of what came before. Yeah. Maybe we can call it in the the neo-neoclassical. I had two quotes referring to this style of art, and one is, unity and simplicity are the two true sources of beauty, which obviously goes back to the Gregorian chanting I just mentioned. And the other is, the one way for us to become great, perhaps inimitable, is by imitating the ancients, which I don't think is true exactly, but I, I like that spirit in practice. I feel like it's a very practical way of thinking I think artistically. So. 
And you could look at the ancient odds, the ancient trees in a more yeah, like yeah. biomimicry yeah. sort of way, because I think that is the best way to look at design and beauty and fashion and the, ne- like everything like that. Yeah, neo neoclassical. Yeah. And your art movement? My art movement is the arts and crafts movement, which existed between 1880 to 1920, and it was in response to the Industrial Revolution of 1760 to 1840, the first Industrial Revolution, I should say, because there was kind of a second. But the arts and crafts movement was spearheaded by John Rushkin and William Morris, and these were two... So John Rushkin was a art critic. He was the first professor of art history mm-hmm. at Oxford, and then Morris was more hands-on with the movement, so he founded a company which produced interior design pieces, wallpaper, stained glass. He kind of had a lot of guilds going on. Guilds. And it was in a way to try and say, yes, we can, like, these guys weren't against technology. Like, they weren't Ludites. But they were against how everything that was kind of made en masse was ugly. Yeah. And boring and low quality. Yeah. So they were trying to say... And this was over 100 years ago. Yeah. So these days they'd be uh, rolling in the mass-produced IKEA couches. Yeah, they would not be happy. So what they did, they were like, we have all these artisans because it was so recent that the Industrial Revolution happened. So the skills weren't lost yet. Mm-hmm. But they were they knew the skills would be lost, so they established a bunch of guilds, schools, so on to teach and conserve the arts of hand making things and the design elements, because it's not just like the social side of it, it's an it is an artistic like visual movement. So the design elements that are really commonly associated with the arts and crafts movement are exposed handiwork which i feel like is a very solar punk solacine idea so it's like maybe you have a cabinet but you instead of putting a a veneer on it you leave it exposed so you can see the joint work and things like that not that far off like industrial design the type Mm. of thing that apple you know like that kind of stores but i guess that's that's exposing the the machine madeness of it this Mm -hmm. is exposing the handmadeness of it yeah and like Another few elements of it include using natural dyes instead of the artificial chemical dyes. They loved natural motifs. And the motifs of the arts and crafts movement really inspired Art Nouveau. So those really swirly like plant motifs. Yes. Because during this time period was when globalization was really kicking off. And so a lot of plant specimens were being circulated around the world. And so, for example, in the Natural History Museum in England, there's there's columns all around the the building. Each one is made of a different stone from England, mm-hmm. and each one has a different plant engraved on it. And those were carved from live plant specimens. So, Whoa. like, the carvers, it was two brothers who did all of the carvings. They held the plants in their hands and then carved from that. And this was... Yeah, an element of the arts and crafts movement. I have a couple quotes, which I think will really inspire fashion in the solo scene. And I'm extending this a bit to the home because next week I would like to talk about fast homewares. 
because we're not really going to get a chance to talk yes. about that, I don't think, in True. any other semester. But these, the first one is that art is should be made for the people and by the people, a joy to the maker and the user. And that's so simple and obvious, but I think we have really lost that with industrialization. Yeah, I mean, it's a sad thing because that's obvious to us. Yeah. But I feel like there's a, at least some bizarrely invested champions of the opposite of that. For instance, AI. Mm-hmm. Like I hear people talk about AI enthusiastically and say, oh, you know, those imperfections in art that humans love, soon enough AI will be able to do those too. Or like mm-hmm. film grain, we can apply that. Dig- it's like, why, why, do we, why are we pushing for this? Why do we want that? Yeah. And it's just like the experience. There's some intangible qualities of making art and producing things even. Yeah. And like what really pushed Morris in particular was he lived in a very poor neighborhood. He wasn't poor himself, but his home was surrounded by a lot of lower income people. And he saw like the suffering that was going on of women, children, because obviously at the time children working and men. And he was like, this isn't right. Like if we're getting cheap furniture, yes. But at what expense? The expense of these people's well-being. And I always find it interesting because you see the charts of during the industrial revolution, well-being goes up because there are marginal gains in productivity, material security, I suppose. But it's like the intangible things that aren't in the well-being go down. I mean, I think think also, obviously people would trade, for instance, food and keeping their children alive mm-hmm. for a little bit of a spiritual malaise or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But I also think regarding the the average, like that goes up mm-hmm. with technological increases in general, but it doesn't discount that there will always be some people, perhaps quite a lot often, for whom well-being goes down. Mm-hmm. For instance, these artisans who are perhaps out of a job immediately afterwards. Yeah, exactly. So these guys had their workshops where they had looms, they had all of these technologies, but they have so many quotes. I'm trying to not like bombard them all. But Morris said something along the lines of, you can use automation to a point as long as it doesn't inhibit creativity. Yeah. And I feel like that's a really good line because people often talk in black and white, like either it's going to be all technology or it's going to be all handcrafted, but there is an in-between. Like when I make the clothes for Solacine, I use a machine. Yeah. Because doing them by hand would take an eternity and that would almost impede well-being in a sense. I really like the sound of this arts and crafts movement because you described it to me this week as not quite being, not being so simple as 100% opposed to mass production. Yeah. But opposed to the soullessness of it, as we would Mm -hmm. say, or the ugliness of it. And it's this kind of tertiary solution or like, I wouldn't say compromising, but just creative action that i think characterizes the solo scene as well where it's like it doesn't have to be all or nothing yeah in various ways but it should always be more soul centered yeah i think so so a few more points about this one is on guilds because i knew what guilds were like it was a a group of workers doing their thing yeah but i didn't fully understand how great of an idea there because another thing about these guys is that they're not anti-capitalist they're pro-capitalism but not pro-late-stage capitalism i mean i say that but morris obviously got into the socialist movement later in his life but socialism isn't necessarily always incomplete 
opposition with capitalism. So a guild is when there's, say, 10 artisans. They all do the same thing. They all make chairs. But they share a workshop and they share their profits. Mm. So it's like maybe Billy doesn't have as many customers this week, but Marvin will give him some of his money. And it's it's kind of um, communist in that way of like they're sharing the income, but it's so they're not competing, but they are all working together and they probably want each other to be better. So they're not going to like hide any new techniques from their <laughs> colleagues. They'll be like, hey, did you know about this? Because they want everyone there to make money yeah. and to make nice things. It's very World of Warcraft these days. I think the word guild is very out of, out of use. Maybe yeah. that could come back in the solo scene. Yeah, I think so. I'm always interested in expanding our solo scene vocabulary. So yeah, I feel like guilds are there as well. Yeah, guilds and quests. <laughs> yeah, a few key points of the movement are truth to materials. So often, as I said, kind of with those columns of like each one being made out of a different type of yeah, stone, yeah. they were always trying to highlight what the thing was made of. So they wouldn't paint wooden things; they would leave it with maybe just like a light coat of oil right but still want you to see the grains you mean like houses that are made to look like stone brick etc yeah not that exactly not that to be clean and functional designs that allowed the natural components of the design to shine through and minimal yet inspired so it's like they don't want it to be like gaudy and like kind of over the top Mm -hmm. but still inspired and like pretty not just like hyper-functional the way the things made on mass were. And to wrap us out, I will say this quote by William Morris that I think can be like posted on the wall at Solacene. At Solacene, is that a place now or? At our apartment. Yes, we can, we you can, mean the studio. Yeah. <laughs> it says, have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. And I feel like you might have used this quote on here before. It rang a bell when I No, that's it. just that's just how I talk. Yeah, you do have that tendency. But I just think it's great. And if you want to learn more about the arts and crafts movement, I found a great YouTube series from about twenty years ago on it. Twenty on years the, ago? Yeah. So it was uploaded. It was originally on TV. Oh. So right. it was uploaded whenever the internet was founded. I think the first YouTube video was in two thousand five or six. So yeah, I guess it could have been almost twenty. Yeah, years. it was pretty early. And it's really great and has like 100 views. Yeah. So like, just is, it about, it is it about 100p as well, the quality? No, no, yeah. I'd, I'd give it I'd give it the benefit of the doubt and the quality. But yeah, just look up Arts and Crafts Movement documentary. It's the only one. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking about the benefit of the doubt, the garment of the week this week is... Do the jingle. Do, 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 do. The boat shirt. The boat shirt. Very... Th- thin and see through i can see you through it yeah well this is my boat shirt Mm -hmm. people watching on youtube so seen podcasts on youtube you can see it for the listeners at home i wish you can describe it perhaps okay it's a sea blue (laughs) button-up shirt v-neck men's shirt it has gold medallions all over it with (laughs) with anchors and a crest and then in between all of these medallions, there's a rope motif. Right. And this shirt comes from, hails from a thrift shop in Italy, if I recall. Size 50. Alpina? Yeah, the brand says Alpina. I don't know what that is. Okay. 
it is you mentioned it, a v-neck i feel like that doesn't even do it justice it's like a it pretty much goes down to your sternum mm-hmm. maybe that's what a v-neck is i don't know i don't really wear those very often I also don't wear this boat shirt very often. You do not. I bought it on our vacation and it was just <laughs> this whole concept of the vacation shirt, which I feel like is a common meme, right? Like that's yeah. proliferated around. Like people will wear things on vacation that they wouldn't ordinarily wear. Mm-hmm. And then you bring it home and you're kind of like, <laughs> where does this go? What yeah. do I do with this? Because you can't really wear it around Montreal in the winter or no. in the summer. Or in the summer. Honest. That's the thing with the boat shirts. It was really an aspirational garment. And I hope that mm-hmm. other people listening have these. I think they're often weight related. I'll buy this and hope that one day I'll fit into these, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But this is, I'll buy this for when I own a boat yes. and am a captain. We both have a boat shirt. Do you have one? Yeah, I have my one with the collar. I think I wore it on our boat last yeah. episode. Yeah. If you so, want to go back and see that. Yeah, if you want to go back and see that, listen to our episode. I think it's just called Boats with an exclamation point. <laughs> So that will explain more about the the ethos of, as we call it, boat lust. Mm-hmm. But in terms of this garment, I don't believe I've worn it in about a year. Yeah. I think I probably only wore it once or twice. I don't really like it that much. It's not great. <laughs> <laughs> it looks cool on you and it looked cool when we were on vacation. So that's right. really all you can ask But it, it did it though. Yeah. Or was it just fun? Who knows? I think sometimes things are just fun. And something else I wanted to to bring up that we haven't mentioned during the semester at all is modesty Mm. showing skin yes what's that like in the solo scene (laughs) (laughs) not to sound too controversial but because i I, one of the main main reasons i don't like wearing this because i am very i don't know i like being cozy and covered big cozy boy (laughs) well i just don't like showing i don't like yeah displaying myself I think modesty is cool and it depends on the environment quite a lot because I was always opposed to growing up when it's like you're not allowed to wear a bikini at camp because whatever. It was like, so you don't like being told what to do. Yeah. And it's like you're swimming. You should be able to wear a bathing suit. Yeah. But then like you shouldn't have to. It's just like depends on the thing. However, I don't think wearing like a bikini top just out for groceries is super cool. Like I think it's tennis kind theory. of tennis theory. Like what you're doing kind of determines the level of modesty if you're going out on a date maybe you're a little bit less modest but if you're going to school i feel like there's a level of propriety that you need to adhere to but i don't think it should be top yeah, down it's very it has to be uh, up from the people it's a very non-committal like politicians answer you just gave but yeah, I, I appreciate that I no because i do really think it's different <laughs> for me versus other people yeah. <laughs> you and i are both big cozy people bit cozy but is it just insecurity is that just our way of rephrasing <laughs> we're it like it's, we're just cozy yeah just I'm wearing just a big blanket in yeah. 30 degree heat <laughs> so my, my final art movement that i thought would be a neat parallel to this that of the Solocene fashion is spoken words in literature which is not really something that i enjoy that much listening mm. to Sometimes I try and deliver the opening Solocene poem in a spoken word style, but that's more of a sense of comedy rather than me really feeling the emotion of it. How about next week, by the way, can be your poetry week. It's finally my poetry week. Okay, yeah. sounds good. You've been good. dreading this day, but... I dread it every semester, but I'm sure maybe people love my poems. Right. The I thing with it. me is I start the semester off very hot and inspired. Mm-hmm. And then by week, what are we now? Week 10? 11. I get to a two-line poem. One of the lines just ripped straight from what I've been reading that week. So yeah. I think it's best that you get in. Give me a a week to recuperate. 
But spoken word has always interested me because I'm quite fascinated between this, I wouldn't say tension, but maybe this perennial duality of literature between whether it is written or whether it's spoken. What's the true nature of literature? And I just think, I don't really think there's an answer to that, but I love thinking about it and exploring the different, I suppose, arguments either way or different proponents. So I like learning about different oral traditions. And I think in a sense, the spoken word movement of the 1900s is a bit of a return, return home with an R on the end of it, uh, Return to Homer, of of the Odyssey fame. I don't know if you can say that about really ancient writers, if he even existed. Also, it's something about the fact that written words are infinitely reproducible, copyable, shareable. Mm. Like we can read The Tempest, for instance, today in the original text, yeah. and you don't miss anything. It's the same as reading it back then. It's the exact same words. Yeah, but had it been passed down, you wouldn't be able to, like orally, then had it been passed be down orally, but, but also what I'm thinking about is we can't relive those performances the first time mm. The Tempest was, was performed. Like that's lost to the ether. Yeah. It's somewhere in the walls of the, the burnt down globe. And I think there's something so magical and so soliciting about that. And getting back to my idea of fashion as performance art, this is what I think people miss out on with TikTok fashion videos or fashion photography is you wear a thing, an outfit, let's say, to a place at a time only once. Yeah, it's transient. It's, it's a transient moment. And we are a bit too obsessed with maybe trying to make that permanent. Mm. I think that's well said, yeah. I think so, and trying to capture it. Trying to capture as it. As it was. Yeah. Because when you try and take pictures, any pictures, but especially wardrobe pictures... It's really hard to convey how it actually looks in real life yeah. onto the Well, it's three-dimensional. Screen. Yeah. And there's touch to it. There's and there's, sense, there's lighting like there's, and there's movements. Yeah. And it's completely different. You know, the best video doesn't give you... And I don't want it to, is the point. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't... It's not the same. Yeah. So just, like, leaning into the transience of clothing in the solo scenes. Yeah. Just, like, saying, yeah, this is just my outfit today. And like, if maybe you can't recreate it because your hair doesn't fall the same way yeah. the next or whatever. Maybe you're that's letting the, it be. the melancholy significance of the boat shirt. Mm. It, it was. Yes. It just was the boat shirt for those brief two weeks in the sun in, mm. in Paris and Italy. It was the boat shirt. And it will be the boat shirt again when we get our boat. Yeah. But in the meanwhile, it's just folded in my closet beneath all the trousers because mm-hmm. I don't really want to have to look at it. I was also thinking about, you know, when people say you had to be there. Oh, you had to be there for that. That's a great line. But I also think maybe a more common refrain should be, you had to be paying attention. Because sometimes people mm. are there, but not not there. Wow. Realize. 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 <laughs> okay, the reason that I chose this question was because I wanted to talk about solar punk fashion. And I think we captured it pretty well. But I'm just going to do a quick note on that because I think people listening to Solocene have an interest in solar punk. And my hope with this semester was to kind of flesh out a bit more of a realistic vision of what solar punk fashion is, because right now it's all very referential. So it refers to Art Nouveau, the arts and crafts movement, and a few other just like historical movements, but it's not like its own thing. Yeah. And I think 
what we're trying to do here is envision what people wear in a future that is like utopian, but also post climate change. More unique, yet utilitarian at the same time. And I feel like that's kind of what solar punk strives to be is like, there's a lot of capes and kind of things that aren't very useful. There's cool, but they also have a lot of pockets and snaps and things for like, (laughs) that are very utilitarian. And it's this merging of the arts and crafts movement, which is trying to make things like things that you use every day, beautiful and not like, decoupling those and acting like they have to always be separate. I love the women on TikTok and Instagram who are homemakers, but they choose to wear like kind of fancy dresses every day, even if they're working with kids or in the kitchen, because we've been told you can't do that. You can't dress up to do chores because you're going to ruin the clothes. But it's like not having a fear of the clothes looking worn. I think it's a very solar punk vision for the future Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to instill that in myself because it's like yeah maybe you get a bleach stain on this but it shows that you wore it that it's like a worn thing and then maybe with mending skills you can learn how to get stains out or to repair them if you want them to always look fresh but they don't have to like we have to kind of drop that idea that if someone has a stain on their clothes that they're just like a bad person so do you think the solar punk fashion is more of an ethos of how it's worn rather than what's worn is that what you're getting at yeah i think so yeah like wearing it living in it confidently yeah confidently don't don't let it wear you don't let exactly wear the clothes don't don't let them wear you yeah Yeah. (laughs) so speaking of crying as aaron was a few moments ago we are (laughs) we're going to talk about the intersection between climate change and exploitation of labor in regards to the fashion industry at the moment because I feel like this is very important and we've touched on it quite a few times especially in our episode where we did the definition of all of the words that we'd be using throughout this semester but I felt like it required a designated segment I'm not the best person to convey this information there's countless books that you can read about this maybe we'll link them below or something But just if you're interested in the depths of the injustice in the fashion system, read a book is my best recommendation because until I was, because you always hear about it, but until you really sit down and commit to learning about it, it doesn't fully hit home, I don't think. Mm. Because there's some really great journalists who have done, done the work that needed to be done, but it still hasn't solved anything. It's just caused companies to become better at covering things up. Yeah, good wires. Yeah, because like infamously 10 years ago, there was like a lot of tragedies happening in Bangladesh with factories collapsing and so on. And it was like one-to-one linked with Nike and Levi's and like a lot of just major companies. But now Nike and Levi's in particular, they have painted this image of themselves as really environmental, really socially conscious. However, as recent as this year, And I'm going to get to a kind of a new thing that I learned about the pandemic and relationship to worker exploitation. Those companies were one-to-one linked with ongoing exploitation of people. So they just, just be warned. Okay. So I'm going to try and break it down. You can just 
listen <laughs> or you can jump in at any point. But my first thing that I thought of was with climate change, people are forced to migrate, right? Yes. Sea levels rise, areas become too hot, there's drought, there's famine and so on. So people have to move because otherwise they will have no food or livelihoods. So often when they move, they'll move to cities where there's better infrastructure usually and jobs. But in those cities is where factories are producing clothing. And so when people are coming en masse to a place desperate for work, it's much easier to exploit or to traffic them. And so this relationship is a wicked problem as you would say but yeah, it sounds like a it's a feedback loop as well exactly so it's like these companies are some like sometimes literally just polluting the water and then the people who used to have a farm like they weren't working in the factories they had their own thing going but now the water is polluted so they can't farm anymore so they have to go work in the factory and contribute to this cycle of the factory getting bigger producing more exploiting the people who they put into a position to need to be exploited. And it's just this really messy loop. So that was one thing I wanted to touch on. Another is that during the pandemic, we saw how there was the people dubbed essential workers. And this wasn't just people in healthcare, it was delivery drivers, male people, and so on. So it's like, these are jobs that are often associated with like a lower income or like a lower economic social position. And those people in the pandemic had to go out and like risk their health to contribute to society and keep society running. And the pandemic is one thing, but as there's increasing heat waves and so on, the, the stress people, on the systems. yeah, people in offices or people in higher economic positions can afford to take a day off work if there's a heat wave. They don't have to go in or they can work from home. But those hands-on jobs they're going to be f right. have no they're, like, they're, option they're to go out. They're not insulated from it. Even something like air pollution in, in all our big cities, right? Exactly. So in this way, there's the feedback between these industries are causing environmental harm, but then the people who have to go out to deliver the clothes every day or to, yeah, like there's so many different things, but they have to go out and breathe the air that was polluted by these industries in order to make these industries more money because they don't have the option of taking a day off work because if they do, they risk being fired or they risk losing that money, which was needed to pay rent or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's also not just confined to certain countries. It happens all over the world. I was reading some reports and the Helen Mc, the Helen, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation said that less than 2% of workers who make clothes are paid a living wage of all clothes. And that just made me like <laughs> sing <laughs> because it's like, oh no, it's fine. It was made in America. It was made in the UK. Yeah. That doesn't mean anything. There was like about 50% of garment workers in Scotland, I believe it was, are paid less than three pounds per hour. And it's like, that's less than half of the living wage or the minimum wage even. That's why we need guilds. That's why we need guilds. So it's just like, remember, it's not just confined to certain countries. It's the whole entire industry is corrupt. I mean, some people would say the whole economy, but that's for another episode. Yeah, that is for another episode. Yeah, it's better to focus on fashion or else we're going to be here all, all night. 
So another thing is if people aren't paid a living wage, then they don't have the luxury of affording the bulk, fancy, low-waste options or even to afford clean fuel. They just have to burn whatever they can to stay warm or to cook their food or they have to drink the bad water. They have to drive 10 kilometers to get groceries because like yeah. they can't afford the 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 expensive sustainable options because sure. sustainability is more expensive because for some reason the cucumber wrapped in plastic is 50 cents whereas <laughs> the organic one is $5 yeah. and you just don't have a choice and that just becomes a loop and like there's a reason why Scandinavia is super sustainable and kind of held up as this vision for the future of like wow, we can like be like them and have like a great social situation. Because it's wealthy? Because it's wealthy. Yeah. And there's also people who are afraid as like people come out of poverty. They're like, well, no, they're going to all start eating meat and start wearing all the clothes. It's like, but like that's not exactly what people want. People just want to be able to like afford heat <laughs> and to eat, period. Like it's it's not a worry. And a lot of studies and projections have been done about if poverty was solved overnight like the climate wouldn't like that wouldn't be the issue with climate change the issue with climate change is like the people who buy like 15 shirts a day or whatever like you yeah like me so 15 pairs of jeans a month my final thing is something i learned about that just kind of made me feel angry and so i'm going to air my grievance and then we can try and end on something positive i've got something positive to end on. okay good <laughs> so the pandemic Right. We remember that. I like this. Let me just put, I like this idea of the Solacean pod being kind of a good cop, bad cop thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> now I know listeners, when you start, they'll be like, oh. And then when I start, saying, like, oh, look, it's a fun guy. Like that. Like everyone's happy about me. <laughs> falling apart. Okay. So I found a little anecdote about the pandemic because you and I both had these suspicions. The, the pandemic. That I feel like a lot of people had about like, the price of everything just went up, like, exponentially. Yeah. And they were like, because of the pandemic, there were issues with it the was, supply chain. It was the supplies. It's, a, it's like it's 2023 now. Yeah, but there was a virus. Yeah. So it was like, these people being like, ooh, you can... And so, <laughs> here's the thing. So, in 2021, garment companies reported the highest ever, ever profits. So they weren't making less money. They were making the most money they've ever made. Yes, the most money. On the sweat, sweatpants. On the sweatpants. People were buying them for the Zoom calls. The sweatpants. Yeah, you have to wear the Zoom sweats. Yes. But <laughs> they, at the very beginning of the pandemic, canceled a bunch of orders because they thought we didn't know what was going on. Like, yeah. it makes sense. They okay. canceled a bunch of orders. They said, oh, we can't. We don't want to make all Who's these clothes. The companies, companies. Let's just say Nike, for example, because okay. they are, in fact, one of them. So Nike said, we're going to cancel all these orders with the factories, but we're not going to pay you. Hmm. But these factories had started producing them, had promised people hours, had ordered the materials, and they're like, we're not going to pay you. We're not going to take on the burden of this cost. That just makes zero sense to me. Because if I ordered something from you and then I canceled it, but you had bought all of the materials, you had hired someone to do it, I should still have to pay you, at least cover the costs. But they, Nike said no. And this was $3 billion dollars. In garments between across in um, across companies that they had paused or canceled, and the people in the factories 
had to take on, like the owners of the factories had to take on that cost. And what did they do? They just stopped paying garment workers or they say, we'll pay you once the companies pay us. Companies still haven't paid. And these garment workers have been going on now two or three years unpaid for a chunk of time that they were working and producing clothes, but they weren't allowed to get the money. Makes me feel bad about my new Crocs. Yeah, you should probably feel bad about those, but... For multiple reasons, probably. Yeah, we'll get into that off air. <laughs> so it's just like... It's just the layers of scumminess. Are, they run so <laughs> layers deep. Layers of scum. But like no one knows about this story. And people still, if you... Oh my gosh, I was so angry. I was reading the Ellen MacArthur report on circular economy, like a vision kind of for a circular economy that was recently published, sponsored by H&M, Nike, like all of like all of these companies. I was like, guys, just because like they're just putting money into like the image mm-hmm. instead of just putting money into paying people. Yeah. It's like you they probably paid like millions of dollars to sponsor this dare I say, kind of lame circular report. It just seems like something that you or I would write explaining what a circular economy is. It's not not great. But then, so like instead of just giving the money to these people who they owe it to. And it's it's very frustrating and unjust. What's your um positive thing to close on? My positive, it's going to seem so lame now to be like, and here's Aaron to talk about a duck that got stuck in a tree. It's like the news, you know? Yeah. They always follow up the murders with that. I had a few. I had a quote by FDR, which is negative, so you might like it. It says, <laughs> a nation that destroys its souls destroys itself. Yeah. But then follow, follows up with a compliment sandwich. Forests are the lungs, of the lungs of our land, purifying the air and giving fresh strength to our people. I've been on a very kind of outdoorsy kick. Good. Um, I think it's because when we went apple picking last week, shout mm-hmm. out to those guys, even though it was a whole thing that when we got to the corn maze... We could see straight through it. The corn was dead. Yeah, the corn was dead. The apples were rotting. Right. And the pumpkins were also rotting. Anyway, so um, it led me to this idea of eco-psychology, which I'd never heard the term before. It seems a little bit just like one of those mid-2000s ideas that people had and lasted for a few years. Putting words together in in the internet era and saying, maybe this will be a thing. And I don't really think it is, but I found this website about it. And there's a poem on the website. It says it's by Janine M. Canty. So shout out to her. But then it brackets, it says, compiled by lines from Prescott College eco-psychology students. So there isn't any rhyme or reason to this poem, literally. And there isn't much information about it. But I think it's literally just like each student wrote a line and they smushed it into a poem. But I think there's something strangely profound about it. So I'll read it and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. It says, I felt an undeniable need to offer this world something of great meaning that reflected all the graces, fulfilling each dimension in order to become an effective member of the greater being. Desire for change. We entreat that which we worship. I felt overwhelmed with sadness. Pathology represents the soul's way of making something known, a visceral sensation, a feeling of deep rage causes us to seek resolution. Rage beneath the surface, dissociation from the previous wisdom, senses and perceptions have been dulled. We grow into the cage we create. We are held in silence by the enormous beast, 
stop the fragmentation of our minds. We just need to feel. Rest my mind and let it flow. Feel other beings' auras and energies. Ecstatic experiences stemming from the primal connections. We are sponges. We are imbued with divinity. Spread like wildfire. This is a movement to greater depth. Who creates the atmosphere for one to germinate? How we treat one another is of immense importance. Reciprocity is the rule. Grace is the first practice of the wild. That is super profound. And yeah, it's kind of neat. I want to meet these students. They're all very poetic yeah. people. It, it definitely is a little bit wishy-washy and maybe slightly more kind of new age spirituality than the soul scene, generally speaking. But what I really liked about it is when you sent me the idea for the question about exploitation of human and planets, I was trying to spin it in a Solocene way and find what what is the antonym of exploitation? Like, what should we be striving for here? And there's different words that come to mind. You can think about, like, coexistence. But I think even that has kind of a, that has a, a strong ceiling on it, existing. Mm. You can think about, like, thriving or maybe nourishing or growing together, empathy, somehow psychological integration. But what this poem gave me was the word reciprocity, which I really like. Mm -hmm. And I think is another maybe Solocene central vocab thing. Like reciprocity. Maybe we should make a mini-zine. Mini-zine just with words? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Put it on the, on the website. I also had a lightning round, if you don't mind closing on that. Yeah. So if you listened to last week's episode, you may know that we ended it a little bit abruptly, I guess, because we were going through the history of fashion and stopped a little bit before or during we could talk about just random Solocene design ideas. So I, I just reconstituted it into a, a lightning round. I'll just list them and you can maybe give a thought or something. Ready? Backpacks. Wonderful. I think everyone should wear a backpack. Very useful. They look decent. What about those Japanese fans? Yeah. 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 Hunger Games. Like in the capital when there's a dystopian extravagance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I had this... <laughs> you this, think so? <laughs> I, no, okay, sorry. I think that is an, a Solocene design element. I had this phrase come to me, you know, shower thoughts? Yeah. Like that. It was a shower thought and it's called dopamine dressing. So I'd heard of dopamine decorating. I hate that, to be honest. I know you hate it. But I mean, like, wearing clothes that just, like, make you feel good. That's just what that's just what things is. You just That's just like, like a label or something. No, but, like, make you feel really good. Agree to disagree on the horn. Um, Taylor Swift. Arrows? Specifically when she says, I write different songs with different pens. My gel pen for this type, my pencil for this type, my pen for this type. Mm. My idea was... This is kind of how we live. Yeah. We are the pens. The world is our song. And we dress for different songs that we want to write. Like you wear your lucky socks when you're writing your test. Yeah. You wear your lucky jacket when you're going on a date. Sure. Okay. Closet slash storage and changing them to be more fun. Ooh. I think that's a point for next week, actually. Oh, that's a bigger topic? Talk about... Garment care I've, and I've always display. been inspired by um, Batman, where he has the cape and cowl just presented, displayed. Mm-hmm. It's like he doesn't even just put them in a drawer. He just has them displayed. Yeah. It's like, what's the benefit to that? Keeping their shape? Mm. The invisibility cloak in Harry Potter. Okay. Just how it's very ornate and then it disappears? It's or? a lightning round. Okay, cool. What I like about this 
firstly, in the movies, it's a very ugly thing. Like, yeah. obviously, when they're, when it's on, it's invisible. When he's just holding it up, it's just like this... It looks like it's covered in coal or something. Mm. But I always like in fantasy, you know, Link also from Zelda has his green garb and it's like a storied tunic. So I, I think that's a common motif in fantasy stories. There's a a garment or a shield or an armor or something, you know, a magical or prophesized thing. And I think this goes along with kind of sentimentality to one's clothes. Maybe that's just my delusional narcissism or something but i i tend to mythologize things i own like that mm. boat shirt capital b capital s that's what i'm talking about and then finally just the idea that humans are a little bit humans even aesthetically like our aesthetic existence is more than just clothes there's also posture body voice speech but it's a holistic, it's a mosaic. Yeah. Like, of which clothes are one part. Yeah, I think we've given clothes too much credit. In some ways, yeah. And we've abandoned rhetoric and hairstyling and grooming and so on. <laughs> and it's not that people are, like, cause I know people spend way more time on these things yeah. than perhaps they used to. But I think the, it's like we work so hard to look effortless. Yeah. So it's like either be effortless and like actually give no effort or I liked how like Victorian women like did their hair all up. Like I don't comprehend how that kind of thing happens. That would be fun. I think hair and makeup because we didn't do that yet, right? No. So next week will be our everything but clothes episode. Okay. Okay. ABC. Yeah. And then finally, you know how people gender ships? Yeah. Marianne. It's usually a she, right? I think all vehicles are she. Oh, she's looking fine today. And maybe there's some there's some stuff there. there's some stuff there that yeah. I'm not well versed on, but if we were to gender clothes, mm-hmm. how would that be? That's my question. I'm sure some languages, so, well, I know French does for really, you yeah, know, and different garments have different genders. I think. Yeah, they do. So I guess I'll just run down hat. Like I genuinely like when you said that you're like gendering clothes. I was like, they're probably one thing that I feel like is genuinely. Not one thing. They feel very genderless to me. Well, we're just talking language here. Yeah. Because for the opening poem, I was going to say, there's nothing ill can dwell in such a temple. At worst, his lines align my spirit gentle or her lines. But then I was like, I'll just do its lines. But it, it, I think it would be nice if we kind of personified shoes. You know, you're just it's not going to come to me. I feel like they're... Too political. No, I genuinely... <laughs> I don't... I feel like they're not... Yeah. No, you don't want to get canceled. It's okay. Give me a lightning round thing to close on. Scarves. Scarves we talked about this week. They're chunky and make me hungry. I don't... Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye.